This is Janice Ian, and you are listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. Uh, One of my earliest Beatles memories was uh, in elementary school. I remember somebody had brought the uh, seven-inch single of Hey Jude to school. Uh, which, you know, was, was kind of a big deal for me because in my household, you, you didn't really buy records because we were lower middle class. And, and my uh, my mother's thing was like, why would you ever want to buy a record? They play songs on the radio for free. I, I remember thinking like someday when I'm like super rich, I'm going to own every Beatles album. Today's guest is Weird Al Yankovic, an American singer, musician, record producer, and actor who is known for his beloved musical parodies. He is also famous for his polka medleys of popular songs, many of which feature his trademark accordion. In 1976, his first comedy song was aired on The Dr. Demento Show. Since that time, he has sold more than 12 million albums, recorded more than 150 parodies, and performed more than a thousand live shows. His work has earned him five Grammy Awards, including his debut win for Eat It, his hit parody of Michael Jackson's Beat It. Remarkably, his first top 10 Billboard album, Straight Outta Linwood, and single, White and Nerdy, were both released in 2006, nearly three decades into his career. His latest album, Mandatory Fun, became his first number one LP during its debut week. Weird Al's unique brand of success comes in part from his innovative use of music videos to further parody pop culture, the song's original artist, and the original music videos themselves. In many cases, he would direct his own videos, later going on to direct videos for other artists, including Ben Folds, Hanson's, The Black Crows, and the Presidents of the United States of America. With the decline of music television and the onset of social media, Weird Al shrewdly used YouTube and other music video sites to publish his work. This strategy helped to boost sales of his later albums. In addition to his musical efforts, Weird Al wrote and starred in the film UHF and the television series The Weird Al Show. He has also made guest appearances and performed voice acting roles on many television shows and video web content, in addition to starring in Al TV specials on MTV. He has also written two children's books, When I Grow Up and My New Teacher and Me. In March 2018, Weird Al released a new song, The Hamilton Polka, a medley consisting of several songs from the hit Broadway musical. Welcome, Weird Al. I wonder if you could 
go ahead and tell me about your early life as a musician. What was the spark that, that got you playing? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I, I never thought that I'd be a professional musician. That was uh, maybe the furthest thing from my mind. I, I always thought that I would, you know, grow up and be an adult and do adult things. And uh, I, I actually uh, decided when I was 12 years old that I was going to be an architect. Uh, so I, I went to college uh, and got my degree in architecture. And somewhere along the line, I, I got... Uh, turned astray. I, I discovered the Dr. Demento show and he exposed me to uh, uh, all these amazing comedy music icons like Tom Lehrer and Spike Jones and Stan Freeberg. Uh, and uh, I started sending him tapes in the mail and he played them on his show and uh, I built up a cult following and that, that kind of made me think, well, this is, this is more fun than being an architect. Uh, so that, that's kind of how I got started. You know, I, I got turned onto that, uh, pathway. Uh, yeah. And, and that show was of course so amazing, right? In the 1970s, it was, and, and beyond of course, and, and thankfully he's still with us, but what a, what a, an incredible powerhouse of a show that was. Do you have any memories of the, the parodies that got you started thinking that, that this could be something for you? Well, the thing was, I mean, you know, back you know, when I was listening in the uh, early and mid seventies, uh, you know, there was no YouTube. There was no way that any any of this kind of strangeness would ever be on you know, the, the radio waves. There was nowhere to be exposed to people uh, that, that Doctor Amano was exposing me to. So it was it was a, real, a really a real window into something that I wouldn't have had access to otherwise. I mean, Doctor Amano changed my life in a very real way. I mean, there's nobody, I mean, there's nobody that would have played my music <laughs> when I was a teenager. I was literally recording songs uh, in my bedroom uh, with an accordion and a cheesy little cassette tape recorder. I mean, there's no way anybody, any, you know, logical radio station would have given that airtime. But Dr. Demento said, oh, this kid's got something, you know, unusual. He's got... Yeah, he's he plays the accordion. First of all, that's that's pretty unique, uh, and he you know it's it's kind of novel that this teenage kid playing an accordion thinks he's cool. So he uh, he gave me exposure like early on, uh, along with all all the greats that he'd been playing on his show, and and uh, gave me that kind of early exposure, which uh, you know I, I I'm positive uh, <laughs> I would not be you know in the entertainment field today if not for Doctor Demento. I vividly remember when I first discovered that show thinking they can't do this, can they? This is not right. No wonder it's on at, you know, midnight or 2 a.m. or something or cloistered away on Saturday and Sunday. It just seemed like it was inappropriate somehow. Well, it was inappropriate in a lot of ways. In fact, my mother, uh, at one point early on, she forbade me from listening to the show because she she overheard uh, some of the songs being played. And some of them, they weren't dirty, but they were a little blue. You know, some double entendres and, and things that, you know, her 14-year-old son shouldn't really be listening to. So uh, after that, it was more clandestine. I would, uh, Sunday nights, I would take my AM, FM, and alarm clock radio uh, into bed with me and I'd pull the sheets up over my head and turn the volume way down low and have my ear right next to it. And I'd listen to the doctor to manage on in secret. Um, but you were playing the accordion before the parodies, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that was my axe. That's what I grew up playing. Uh, I took lessons from ages seven to 10. 
uh, and then just kind of kept playing uh, and practicing on my own after that. But that was, you know, that was my early musical training. So I, I didn't really fit in anywhere. I didn't really, uh, I wasn't really accepted into my friends' rock bands. You know, <laughs> nobody really, I, I, I became a de facto solo uh, musician because nobody really wanted to play with me. Another one of the guests on the program, Stephen Van Zant, said that there was a certain time especially in the early 60s, where everybody he knew played the accordion. No kidding. <laughs> that wasn't quite my memory of it, but I, I get, certainly in the 60s, it was more acceptable, I guess, than it became uh, in later decades. Um, and uh, Lawrence Welk's show was, was very big, especially with my older relatives. Uh, and and uh, I actually um, started taking lessons because there was a door-to-door uh, accordion teacher that came by and you know asked my parents, would your young son Alfred like to take accordion lessons? And because my parents were visionaries, they said, well, yes, of course. Who wouldn't want their child to take accordion lessons? It's a natural choice. It's uh, you know, I could say to my students here at Monmouth University, door to door accordion salesman. I don't know if they'd know what to do with that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think door to door period works these days. <laughs> 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 but yeah, the the accordion thing that was that was just a fluke. And and again, I mean, if it had been, you know, it, they did offer guitar lessons as well. But but um, you know, if I if I grew up playing the guitar, I don't think Doctor Demento would have played my stuff because it wasn't so much my songs were great. It was like, what is this accordion player <laughs> doing? You know, sending me cassette tapes. Uh, were your parents musical? Not as such. And a lot of people think that my dad was Frankie Yankovic, who was uh, America's Polka King. And we shared the same last name, but uh, no relation as far as we could tell. My No, neither one of my parents was really musical. My, my dad once bought a, uh, a $10 guitar at a swap meet and uh, played it tunelessly around the house, just untuned strings, just singing and uh, <laughs> playing very, very badly. So that, that, I don't think I got my, my uh, musical aptitude from him, but maybe my shamelessness. <laughs> How very avant-garde of him. Going back to Van Zant for a moment, so, you know, he's playing the accordion, and everybody he knew threw down their accordions and started playing the guitar in, in 64. Do you remember your earliest Beatles memories? I wasn't, I was just vaguely aware of the Beatles uh, during their heyday because I would have been like four in 1964. Uh, and, you know, I, I didn't listen to a lot of pop radio until uh, I, my early teens. Uh, one of my earliest Beatles memories was uh, in elementary school. I remember somebody had brought the uh, seven inch single of Hey Jude to school. Uh, which, you know, was, was kind of a big deal for me because in my household, you, you didn't really buy records because we were lower middle class. And, and my, uh, my mother's thing was like, why would you ever want to buy a record? They play songs on the radio for free. You know? <laughs> so, uh, but I, that was like a, an early Beatles memory. And, and I got really into the Beatles maybe a, a couple years later, again, in my, in my early teens, uh, and they be- quickly became my favorite group. And I-, I remember thinking like someday when I'm like super rich, I'm going to own every Beatles album. That was like, <laughs> to me, that was like a, a big thing. Like, Oh, t- t- imagine if you like had every Beatles album in your house. You know, <laughs> that-, that was a big thing. That'll show mom. You, you can, own these. you can own these records. <laughs> now you can own them on a little USB drive in your car. 
That's right. And, and you can have all of, you know, the rest of the 60s acts on the same USB drive. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I did some reading about you and uh, I, I, I was just delighted to hear about your folk club, your coffee club experiences. Oh, it, it was called Coffee House. I guess I don't. It wasn't literally a folk club, but I guess a lot of folky kind of things would happen there. I mean, a lot of people coming in and and playing their Dan Fogelberg covers, and a lot of acoustic guitar and mellow Southern California vibe kind of things going on. And uh, this was uh, during my college days. It was sort of like a um, a talent show because like anybody could go up and and perform. Uh, so like amateur night, but I uh, I was just really out of place because like, again, all these like mellow, folky, acoustic acts would come up. And then I'd come up with my accordion and my friend Joel had the bongos and we would just start playing like bizarre medleys of every song ever written in the history of the world, you know, going from the theme from 2001 into the theme from the Godfather, uh, into like some ABBA song. I don't know. It's it just very random. And, and people were like, what is going on here? And, uh, and they, they dug it. It was like my first positive reinforcement because for the first time people were like, you know, thinking I was funny or that I was at least entertaining. So, uh, that was, <laughs> that was sort of like my first real live performances. <laughs> well, speaking of, of being funnier and entertaining, so is is my Bologna the, the breakthrough or was it earlier? Um, it, uh, it was certainly – I guess you could consider that the breakthrough. I mean there's a, a number of points early in my career that you could say, well, this was – you know. You, you took this to the next plateau with this one. And my, my Bologna was the first big one, I, I guess, because before that I, I was getting airplay in the Dr. Mano show. But um, aside from my friends, I don't think a lot of people were calling up the request lines <laughs> asking for it. And my Bologna was the first uh, song that I'd done on the Demento show, which really sort of went viral, I guess, in the days before things went viral. Uh, and I remember I was in college at the time. I, I had recorded the song in the, the the bathroom across the hall from my college campus radio station, and I sent it to Dr. Demento. And uh, a few weeks later, I got a postcard uh, in the mail saying that my Bologna had been number one on the Dr. Demento Funny Five for the last two weeks in a row. And that blew my mind. Uh, and I, I thought, I, I, I distinctly remember thinking, my life is never going to get better than this. This is the high point of my life. We'll be back with more from Weird Al after these messages. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So did you discover when you were at Coffee House that you enjoyed performing live too? Um, or were you really just about the reaction people would have to these these funny songs? Well, I always enjoyed performing. I always got a kick out of it. Uh, but this is the first time that I was kind of getting that uh, you know wave of appreciation back at me. So I mean that that definitely adds to the experience when you have people you know enjoying you and and smiling and laughing and, and clapping and you know that you know the, the more you get from an audience, the more you're inclined to give back. So that was uh, my my first experience of of having a really positive 
uh, experience. I mean, I played uh, accordion uh, for my cousin's wedding when I was eight years old, but you know that that wasn't the same kind of thing. <laughs> you know, this was the first time I was playing for strangers, and they actually liked me, so that was a big deal at the time. <laughs> so. Um, I guess that must have been a, a real eye opener because it's not like you could perform your architecture, right? Um, and and what you were studying at the time. Yeah, I mean, architecture just wound up not being a, a, a great fit for me. I mean, when I was twelve years old, I, I had a drafting class that I liked, and I was good in math and and good in art and design. And my guidance counselor said, "Oh, you should be an architect." And I, you know, I said, "Okay, sure." Uh, but I mean, when I got there, I was not. Um, I, I was not. Even average, I was below average, which was uh, a real blow for me because in high school I, I was the valedictorian. I was like the straight A, you know, top of my class nerdy kid. I was I graduated at sixteen. You know, it was like a, you know I was I was used to being you know I was used to excelling at whatever I did, and in college, uh, you know, I was not even average. I I, I was really struggling. And I think it's because I didn't have a love for it because everybody in my architecture labs were obsessed with it and form following function. And they, they were really into it. And and I didn't have that kind of love for it. And and my passion was comedy and music. And uh, I still didn't think I was going to make a living doing that. But um, it was a very confusing time in my life because I, I, you know, I kind of knew in the back of my head that I wasn't going to spend my life doing the thing, doing the thing that I was being trained for. Before we move on to some of the parodies in specific, I'm wondering, could you explain a little bit about, and I I think some of our listeners might not pick up on this, and I know our students certainly wouldn't, um, about your love of polka. What drove you to that? Because it's, it's, it's sort of an art form that I don't think a lot of folks think about even now and even after your work. Well, uh, as hard as it is to believe, I'm sure, uh, when you take accordion lessons at age seven to 10, uh, they don't teach you Led Zeppelin songs. Uh, you know, they teach you polka because, uh, polka is sort of, uh, um, the definitive, uh, genre for, uh, the accordion. I I learned a lot of polka and some, uh, some classical pieces, but, but not anything that you consider really rock or even contemporary. Uh, it was all, you know, polka and, and songs written hundreds of years ago. Uh, so, so when I stopped taking lessons and started, you know, just kind of playing by ear on my own, uh, I would play along with, uh, with the songs on the radio and I would kind of learn the, the chord structures of, of pop songs. And, and that's sort of like what got me into playing rock and roll on the accordion was because, you know, like I, I wasn't trained that way, but I, I quickly picked it up. And, and, uh, and again, even though my friends didn't think, uh, it was appropriate for me to be playing rock and roll on the accordion, that was, you know, where my interests were. And, and that was the only ability that I had. That's, that's to this day, that's the only instrument that I can play well. I mean, that's, that's my ax. Anytime you see me in a music video holding a guitar, it's totally a prop. <laughs> um, so, you know, one thing that, that, uh, as folks discovered you, uh, me being one of them in those initial years, uh, is that these weren't, um, these weren't weak parodies, you know, I mean, obviously you would find uh, a niche in terms of, you know, turning beat it into eat it, for example. But as far as the music goes, those are pretty painstaking works, right? We try, you know, I, and I have to give full credit to my band. I've had the same band uh, since the early 80s, uh, and they are some of the best musicians in the world. They can do every genre imaginable, and I'm very lucky that they've stuck with me for all this time. Uh, 
and uh, yeah, and, and maybe in the first couple albums, we weren't as uh, painstaking. Uh, in, in fact, there's there's accordion all over the first couple albums. Uh, and when we try to do parodies, we try to make them sound almost exactly like the original now. And, and the original songs obviously don't have accordion. So it's, it got to the point where we thought, hey, you know, we have the aptitude and we, ha- we can take a little time with this now. Why don't we just really make it sound like the original recording so that when people hear the song on the radio for the first time, they're thinking, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's that pop song that I've been hearing all the time. And wait a minute, those aren't the words. So we like to take people on a little a little journey and then make a big sharp left turn. And and there's no doubt that that affects well that 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 effect um, exactly achieves that kind of moment for listeners. But one thing that you know also is uh, you know not just parroting the original act and the original song, but you're also honoring it by playing it really well. I I love that about you and your band. So kudos. Thank you. You know, I, I've heard uh, a lot of uh, nice comments from uh, from people whose work I parodied, uh, and they're they're pretty impressed. Uh, you know, they'll say, you know, we had this thing on the bridge, which is almost like you know, you can't you can't even really hear it, but you 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 picked it out and you nailed it. Like you know, they they, they we take such care to to copy things exactly that we find little things that most people wouldn't even be aware of, and and you know, maybe only the original artist <laughs> knows that we got it right, but if feels good to know that they're they're happy with it now have you ever had any artists not be happy with the result no not really i mean the the famous uh exception was was coolio and that was more a matter of not that he didn't like the song but he just he claims that he didn't give permission at the time it's a whole you know it's a whole saga uh, but at the end of the day he's he's fine uh it was uh it was a big misunderstanding and he's totally fine now uh, but other than that, I mean, every everybody that I've ever uh, parodied has, as when I've run into them, they've always, uh, you know, to my face, <laughs> at least they've been very complimentary. <laughs> um, I wonder if, uh, you know, our audience in particular will be quite interested to hear about uh, your attempted work on Live and Let Die. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, I has, I'll obviously talk about it for this podcast, but I, I hesitate to bring that up because it's, it's a story that I wish never got out there because for the last 20 years, people have been saying, oh, I hate I hear Paul McCartney turned you down for a parody. And and, you know, he he did. But it's you know, he had a good reason to it. And and uh, he's got a great sense of humor. So I, I hate it when they put him on the same list as people uh, like like Prince, who just turned me down because he doesn't like parody songs. Paul was totally fine with me doing a parody of live and let die, but he said, my, my idea, my idea was chicken pot pie. And Paul very famously is vegetarian. And he says, I'm fine with you doing the parody, but can you make it something not <laughs> with chicken? Cause like, how about tofu pot pie? And, uh, I said, well, I, I can't really do that because like the whole pair, the whole chorus of the song was, bark, 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 you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's all about chicken, you know? <laughs> And, and it just didn't work. So sadly, I had to let that go. So I, I wish, um, you know, I, I love Paul McCartney, obviously. And I, I hate that, you know, he, uh, people to this day are asking, how come Paul wouldn't let you do that song? It's like, you know, he had a very valid reason and he has a great sense of humor and it just didn't work out. He absolutely did. But let's be honest. I mean, tofu does not scan as well either as chicken. Yeah. In terms of the original text. And, and to, just to give you an example of, again, what a great sport Paul is, uh, he, I actually got to direct Paul McCartney. 
Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but uh, a few years ago, uh, I did a, a 3D movie uh, for uh, the uh, uh, Orange County Fair called Al's Brain in 3D. And we got Paul on camera to ask one of the questions because we're doing like man on the street questions and then I ans- answer questions about the brain. So I got, I got Paul actually to say, say, uh, say, tell me, Al, how does the brain actually work? And he strums, strums his guitar, and which blew my mind that he had agreed to do that. I, I, I called up his office uh, asking if Sir Paul would want to do this, thinking there's no way in a million years. And like a month later, I get a call from, from his office saying like, yes, he's available and uh, we'll arrange a time. And I, I, I just could not believe it. I, I got to meet him uh, – well, I, I met him in 84, but I got to meet him again uh, at the Coachella Music Festival. And uh, we set up the cameras backstage. And before his show, uh, he came by for five minutes and we, we shot his bit and went off. And uh, it was one of the high points of my life. I mean, he, he's one of the few people I, I don't really get stage struck too much or, or starstruck. Um, but he's one of the few people that it's difficult for me to just be normal with just because he's meant so much to me in my life. Uh, he's, you know, I, I, I'm sure he would appreciate people just to have a normal conversation. And I tried my best, but the whole time my brain is screaming, it's Paul McCartney. You're talking to Paul McCartney. <laughs> oh, so what is it then about the Beatles that keeps you coming back that, that has you so starstruck like that where you might not be with other world-class musicians? Well, I mean, they're, you know, in my mind, the greatest band of all time. And, uh, and I mean, nostalgia enters into it, I guess, because I grew up listening to the Beatles. Uh, they were, you know, a big part of my, my teenage years. Uh, and I would listen to them constantly and, and their music age as well. I mean, every generation new generation discovers them and, and, and they've obviously got lasting appeal and uh, you know, pound for pound. I don't think, you know, you're going to find uh, a, a better pop band ever. Yeah. So it's just a strictly a matter of superlatives. They're the outlier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you also, right. Had a, had a connection with Mr. Harrison too, correct? Yeah, I, uh, I, did, I did a parody of, uh, of Taxman uh, called Pac-Man back in, I think, 82, back when Pac-Man was uh, a big craze. And, and this is before I had a record deal, and I was just recording stuff for the Dr. Demento show. So in, in those days, I didn't bother to get permission. Um, it was just sort of like, oh, I'll just write this goofy song and play it on the radio. And Dr. Demento played, played uh, the song. And I think after a couple of weeks of playing it, he got a, a cease and desist from George Harrison's attorney. I'm, I'm sure George never heard it because I, I heard, uh, you know, decades after the fact uh, through his son, uh, Danny, who I'm friends with, he said that George was a fan of mine, that he, he had a copy of my movie UHF in the house and, and he actually liked my stuff. So I don't think this was coming from George. It was just like one of those kind of automatic things that attorneys do when they see a, a, a copyright breach and they sent Dr. Mano a cease and desist letter uh, that he couldn't play it anymore. Uh, so and so fast forward, gosh, how many years would this be? Thirty five, almost 40 years later, uh, I because I, I'm friends with Danny and Olivia now, uh, I said, hey, about this Pac-Man song from 1982. Can I put this on like a rarities album? And they're like, yeah, sure. So that it, it actually got an official release a couple of years ago on my box set after all this time. <laughs> and you performed, am I am I remembering correctly, at George Fest? 
I did. Oh, yeah. But I didn't know that's what you're referring to. Um, yeah, I, I played at George Fest uh, uh, again a couple of years ago, and I did a, a What Is Life, which is one of my favorite George songs. And uh, that was a great experience. I had such a fun time. It was an amazing band, and the crowd was great. And I'm, I'm glad that got captured. That's on, on the uh, – the DVD Blu-ray, I guess. Uh, but yeah, that was that was really a blast. I was I was very honored to be a part of that. There, that was a tremendous show. The version of Sir Frankie Crisp is just wonderful too, mm. and and certainly your work. Now, did you manage to to inject any parody, or was this just straight? It was very straight. I mean, it was a very uh, <laughs> kind of Weird Al performance, I guess. I was very goofy in my uh, uh, presentation, but I mean, I didn't change any words. I try to sing it as straight as possible uh, and, and you know, give it uh, all the respect that it was due. <laughs> so um, when you when you sit down now and you're you're going to do a parody, what are what are the steps that you take? Is it would you say it's like songwriting where you get this bolt out of the air, out of the blue that, that creates the moment or, or is it more conscious? It's, it's, it's both. Um, if I'm lucky, it'll be a bolt out of the blue. Uh, and you know, uh, half my material is original and, and that's a whole different writing process. But for the parodies, basically what I'll do is I'll, I'll study the billboard charts. I'll listen to a lot of pop radio. I'll, I'll try to determine what are the big, uh, songs at the moment uh, and which songs uh, have a real strong musical hook to them. Uh, and then I'll see if I can come up with a funny idea. I'll, I'll sit down and I'll, I'll come up with like a like hundred different ideas for each song. And, you know, 99% of those ideas will be horrible, but if I'm lucky, maybe one of them will be okay. Uh, and then if I've got an idea that I think would sustain humor for three minutes, I, I'll have my manager contact the original artists people and see if we can get their uh, permission, which I always do, even though legally it's a gray area. Uh, and if they're cool with it, then I'll, I'll write the song. And, and that's a whole other thing. And I, I, and, and I, I spend a lot of time these days writing uh, parody songs uh, just because I know that I have to live with them for a long time. I'll, I'll be performing them on stage for hopefully years to come. And, and, uh, and I want to make sure they're as good as possible. So like, whereas another one rides the bus in 1980, I, I dashed up in like 20 minutes, you know, now I could spend like months fine tuning lyrics to like some goofy novelty song, you know, just because I, I care, you know, <laughs> and that shows. And I, and again, that, you know, to my ears, that's what makes them special uh, and different. You know, it's, it's, it's true parody in the sense that, you know, you are um, having some fun with the reiteration of the original, but you're also honoring it, you know. Yeah, I do my best. It, it is it, it from a place of, uh, of respect because, you know, when, when I do my parodies, they're not meant to put down anybody. They're not stepping on somebody's toes. You know, a, a lot of parody artists, they, they go for the jugular and, and they I guess that's more satire. But and I, I've, do, I've done satire here and there, but it, it's, it's pretty it's not toothless, but it's, 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 um, it's not mean spirited. You know, I, I don't want to put people down. I think you can have plenty of fun and have, you know, uh, be, 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 uh, certainly funny without having it be at somebody else's expense. Absolutely. And there's just been plenty of that and we don't need any more, uh, um, you know, we need a, a better spirit in the world. Speaking of the world, you're about to go out on tour, correct? Yes, we're doing a, a big North American tour, uh, 133 dates. 
uh, starting the end of April and ending the end of October. Uh, it's going to be a big one. Uh, so we're, we're, uh, we're, we're, uh, I'm not sure exactly when this, uh, <laughs> this is coming out, but, but tickets go on sale, I think December 10th. Uh, and, and it, uh, we're really looking forward to it. Obviously we've, we haven't been doing a lot of traveling in the last couple of years. <laughs> so, so we're very much looking forward to being out in the world and we're going to be careful. We're going to be safe. Uh, but we're, hopefully it's going to be a super spreader of joy. <laughs> you know, and, and hopefully by, by the time those first dates occur, we will be in, in a better place with our, our pandemic, our shared pandemic experience. Um, but that would be a hell of a shirt, super spreader of joy. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm hoping I don't need to do my meet and greet inside a giant glass bubble, but we'll see, you know. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. <laughs>